Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So I could drink like a, a pint glass full of LSD and it wouldn't kill me. It would not kill you. You would have a very, 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 very <laughs> intense experience but no one has ever died from taking lsd if you've wanted yet feared to do work that is weird this is the show you just need to hear paul austin is a coach be it for tech bros in silicon valley or for your average middle-aged everyman but it's what paul coaches that has caught the attention and interest of people and news outlets everywhere these days paul is an lsd microdosing coach And on today's episode, he tells us what you could expect during a typical microdose of LSD. He dispels old myths about the drug that still refused to die. And he explains how much of the work towards normalizing LSD is really about combating decades-old fear-mongering. I'm your host, Sam Balter, and this is Weird Work. Now let's listen to them speak about their jobs, which are quite unique. Could you describe what is microdosing? Sure. So yeah, microdosing is pretty much the act of consuming small amounts of psychedelics on a somewhat regular basis for an extended period of time. So kind of the specifics of what that might look like is taking a sub-perceptible amount of LSD, which is about a tenth of a regular dose, okay, uh, and doing it two times per week for a period of um, anywhere from five to ten to fifteen weeks, depending on the reason the individual is getting into it and their intention uh, in beginning a microdosing protocol. So, for people who are uh, who haven't tried it, mm-hmm. what does a microdose of LSD actually feel like? So, on a traditional dose of LSD, hundred micrograms you are clearly in an altered state of consciousness. So typically on a single dose, there will be visuals. Um, so you might see fractals or things will kind of be wavy. Yeah. Um, there will be a deep sense of kind of insight and reflection. Uh, whereas with a microdose, nothing really changes in your external periphery. Uh, you're not having any visuals. Um, nothing is changing. I'm not going to see anything basically. Right. You're not going to see anything. But what people are noticing on a microdose is you know, maybe a slightly increased like sensory in a sense of uh, touch or taste or smell. They'll be slightly more energetic. Um, they might have a bit more initiative to overcome procrastination when working on creative projects. Okay. It's a little bit easier to, you know, engage and involve with, with people as well. And like, how long is this lasting? Like, how long are these feelings? Like, is this all day? Is this a couple hours? Is this five minutes? Yeah, so it depends on whether they microdose with LSD or a lot of people are also microdosing with psilocybin mushrooms. Okay. Um, and so LSD has, it lasts about twice as long as psilocybin mushrooms. So it's about 12 hours, whereas mushrooms are about six hours. So if you're microdosing with LSD, it's always best to microdose in the morning because it 
take so long to work through your system. If you put yourself on uh, a microdosing regime or whatever, you take it generally in the morning. They wake up in the morning, they microdose with LSD, and then you know they start their work day. And in their work day, they notice they're a little bit more focused. They notice they bring a sense of playfulness to the work that they're doing. They notice it's easier to uh, brainstorm and come up with creative ideas. And then you know after they work for the day, they might go to the gym. At the gym, they notice they have a little bit uh, a better body coordination. They have more energy. Uh, they're able to be more present with what they're doing. Then you know after the gym, they have they go and have dinner with friends. And at dinner, they notice oh, it's easier to connect. It's easier. To to relate. It's easier to engage. I'm not stuck in my head so much. And I'm, I'm, I'm much more present with these people who I'm having dinner with. I'm not checking my smartphone at all. And then they go home at night and just kind of take a deep breath and just reflect on the day. And they, they know that it's been a really good day yeah. um, for them. This is like a lot of people's just general experience. So it's just like with- a positive, reflective experience. It helps you connect. It sounds like like the connecting with other people aspect of it has been big for you personally. Yeah, and I think that is also that that sense of interconnectedness is one of the explanatory reasons for why psychedelics are um, such an excellent medicine, whether in microdoses or higher doses, is they make you feel connected to the earth, to your community, to other people. And I think, you know, I was having a really good conversation yesterday with this Nietzschean philosopher, which I won't get too much into, but we were talking about how like a lot of modern maladies, particularly from like a mental health perspective, depression, uh, addiction, these come typically from a sense of feeling isolated, of feeling alone, of not feeling loved, of not feeling accepted. Um, And what psychedelics seem to do is they break down these barriers of self. They break down these barriers of being a separate self and help you to really engage and connect with people and things that are outside your uh, kind of brain and mind, so to say. When was the first time that you took LSD, whether in a microdosing format or not? Yeah, that's a great question. So the first time I took LSD was uh, when I was 19. Um, it was May 2010, uh, one of the last days of, of college of my sophomore year. And basically, I'm originally from uh, West Michigan. And West Michigan is kind of like what we call it the third coast because <laughs> the coasts of Lake Michigan, we have these beautiful sand dunes that really few people know about. And so I was out there in these sand dunes on like a beautiful early May day. And I took, I think, think two hits of LSD and just had kind of the typical profound, insightful, blissful, beautiful experience. And really those early psychedelic experiences then informed everything I did from the age of 19 till basically now at the age of 27 in terms of the travel that I that I experienced, in terms of the work that I pursued, in terms of the relationships that I cultivated. It was a really like the most impactful thing that I that I've done. What were you like, I'm not doing that anymore? You know, like, because I feel like sometimes you take it and it's like, oh, I'm going to like, I don't want to work normal nine to five or like I need to go out somewhere else or like I need to explore things. Like what was kind of one of those big things that you took LSD and then were like, this is what I need to do. When I was first doing LSD, there was this sense of like shame that I had around the fact that I was doing this substance because it was illegal and because I wasn't really well informed. I thought it was like unhealthy and potentially toxic and dangerous for me. And lo and behold, later I found out that like LSD actually can potentially elicit neurogenesis. It's like really healthy 
uh, for the brain in terms of uh, like BDNF. Does it get does it get stuck in your spine and then pops out years later? No, no. <laughs> so there are all these myths about like if you do LSD seven times, you'll be clinically insane. Yeah, someone yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of these myths that it gets stuck in the spinal cord. None of those are true. And so like after, you know, while I was working through this somewhat like culturally indoctrinated shame that I had around doing it, I also obviously, like I mentioned, had these blissful experiences. And, and one of the big shifts and changes that I made was embracing experiences, uh, embracing uh, like contribution and creative contribution rather than consumption. So um, I, you know, the first 18, 19 years of my life, I lived a more traditional, typical Midwestern or even American type of lifestyle where a, a central point of that was purchasing things and buying things and, 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 and kind of doing what was more normative. And after the psychedelic experiences that I had, I made a commitment basically to pursue a more unconventional path. And so one of the biggest commitments that I made was to try to eliminate, like kind of embrace a minimalistic lifestyle. And as part of that, um, travel as much as possible. So basically, as soon as I graduated from college, soon after these psychedelic experiences, I, I lived in Turkey for a year where I taught English and I traveled um, all over Europe and I traveled all over Southeast Asia. And I was just like, I have no interest in working a job where I feel like a quote unquote cog in the machine, like a more corporate sort of lifestyle. I understood that I had to have income coming in, but at the same time, I wanted to do it on my own terms. And I wanted to have the freedom and independence to dictate uh, what I did with my life. And I didn't want an external party to have some sense of ownership or kind of agency over me. I wanted to really kind of liberate myself to have as much agency as possible. But my goal, so so to say, was not to climb the corporate ladder or to build my resume. My goal was to create something beautiful that would have a lasting impact on myself and you know those that I chose to surround myself with. So you're going through, you're doing a lot of traveling around. And then you decide to start this entire company. I was wondering if you could describe what is Third Wave and what do you do there? Uh, Two friends were visiting me and we basically uh, took a microdose and went up in the hills uh, around Budapest. And that's when the idea of the Third Wave was born because we were going to these Third Wave coffee places in Budapest, which are the kind of like artisanal... $5 $5 latte, you know, you get a nice little like swan on your cappuccino. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so we were going to third wave coffee places. We were taking psychedelics, LSD. And my friend came up with this idea of the third wave of psychedelics as a name that we could use to describe what organization we wanted to build. And the focal point of that was to take uh, the scientific information that we now have about psychedelics. So there's been a lot of research that's been done over the past 10 years about the efficacy of psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms, yep. to treat depression, to treat addiction, to treat um, end-of-life anxiety. Um, MDMA, which is also commonly known as ecstasy, has just re- received breakthrough therapy status from the FDA to treat PTSD. So it will be likely an approved uh, medication for PTSD by 2021. Um, And so we have all this scientific research, but what we noticed is there were only research organizations and there wasn't um, a website or a brand or a presence that made the information relevant to a mainstream audience in a way that was designed well, in a way that was written well. And that wasn't just exclusively focused on science, but also was more important or more focused on what, how are we changing the cultural conversation around psychedelics? 
Okay, so you're trying to take a lot of this science that's occurring and translating it into a way that's just more broadly consumable by people. Yeah. And then using that to sort of go a step further and say, like, how do we change the conversation? So I guess my, my question for you is, like, what do you think the cultural view is now? And then what are you hoping it will be? Um, so I think the cultural perception of psychedelics right now, by and large, is uh, it's a drug. And I think we've been fortunate enough with cannabis um, to kind of break out of the normative and non-normative drug category. So like what, what the drugs that are normative in our culture are alcohol, tobacco, and caffeine. Um, and those are normative drugs that we become accustomed to and we have kind Big of- Big three, a, a they're all good. For exactly. <laughs> Not. <laughs> and, then, and then cannabis is kind of like coming out of, of the ether. I think, you know, a recent Gallup poll showed that 64% of Americans support legal cannabis, including 51% of Republicans. Uh, cannabis obviously started with medicalization back in California in 1996. And now 20 years later, we find ourselves with, I think, eight states that now have legal cannabis and you know, 28 yeah. states maybe that have medical cannabis. And so there's been a re-evaluation of cannabis as not just a quote-unquote drug, but as an actual medicine. And so we have really unfortunate language, um, particularly from, from an English perspective, where mm -hmm. we call things drugs, and that has a heavy stigma attached to it. So when people still often think of psychedelics, they think of them as quote-unquote drugs. And so like I will often read people comparing, for example, with all this kind of cultural um, traction that's happening around microdosing, people will compare, for example, psychedelics to what's going on with the opiate crisis. Oh, um, because oh they're, in like they're mind, in the same category. Exactly. They associate them as it's an illegal drug. And for that reason, it must be toxic, addictive, and potentially harmful. And in fact, psychedelics are non-toxic, particularly LSD and psilocybin mushrooms. You can take as much like uh, an astounding amount of LSD and you will not die. Really? Um, there's behavioral toxicity, meaning if you take LSD a ton and you like <laughs> fall downstairs or jump out of a window, like that, that, that has happened. Um, so I could drink like a, a pint glass full of LSD and it wouldn't kill me. It would not kill you. You would have a very, 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 very <laughs> intense experience, but no one has ever died from taking LSD, uh, specifically from the act of, of consuming there's like stories of people in the 60s of doing thumbprints of LSD where they'll take crystal LSD and they would put their thumb in it and then they would consume it. And it was as much as I think 6,000 hits of LSD. And this was like an initiation that they used. There are stories of people like I remember this one story. Uh, they mistook LSD for cocaine and they snorted a line of cocaine at a party in the 60s. It was yeah. LSD. And they basically just went to the hospital for 24 hours and then were perfectly fine afterwards. Um, so it's like, the, these are the mis kind of conceptions. So there, there's like, there's a distinct lack of education around psychedelic substances because of our prohibition culture around these things. So I think that is why I, you know, we have taken the approach that we have at the third wave is the focus first and foremost is just education so that people know these are non-toxic, these are not addictive because they're serotonergic, they're not dopaminergic. What what is that what does that mean in super simple terms? Yeah, if somebody so, has <laughs> if somebody has never heard either of those words before. Sure. So we have like different <laughs> neurotransmitters, right? And and two of the main ones are serotonin, which yep. is also called the happy molecule, and dopamine. And typically addictive drugs like cocaine, caffeine, 
amphetamines, they will act primarily on your dopaminergenic system, on your dopamine. It, it's kind of like smartphones as well. What the evil new corporations like Facebook, you know, they've created their apps in a certain way so that you want that kick of dopamine again and again, which is why smartphones. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So right. like whenever I feel happy playing Candy Crush because it's like ding, ding, ding or whatever, that that's like dopamine related things and it's addictive. Yeah, yeah, and so you okay, want. Okay, so then again. what is what is on the uh, LSD side of it? So they they mostly act on the serotonergic system, serotonin, and so because they're largely acting on the serotonin system, there's no sort of um, addictive quality to it. They are not addictive substances. So, like for example, my own experience, I microdosed two times a week for seven months when I first mm-hmm. started doing it, and I just stopped cold turkey, no problem at all. And you didn't have any hangover feeling whatsoever from it? No, there's no physical addiction whatsoever. Um, There is, like anything else, can be like a psychological aspect of dependence, like an attachment to it in terms of I'm experiencing all these benefits, microdosing is doing it for me, therefore I need microdosing to get X, Y, and Z. But there's sort of physical cravings that you would get if you just stopped doing it. Yeah. So you're also a microdosing coach. So people are literally coming to you and asking you questions. So I guess the first thing I'm wondering about is who is coming to see you? Yeah. So, so far it's been like the, the full spectrum of people. Um, typically the, the, the person who, you know, the average person who sets up a call with me, they will be uh, not always new to psychedelics. Many of the people who have set up calls have maybe done psychedelics, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, and now they're in their fifties and sixties and you know, they write about microdosing. They want to get back into it. Yeah, uh, I have some people who are retired who are just interested in microdosing to address maybe issues related to aging, cognitive decline, uh, just a general sense of well-being, more energy. Huh. I think I, you know, I just had this impression that like everybody was going to be like a bunch of like Silicon Valley bro developers just try to get like you know more hours of productivity or work in. I didn't expect so many people who are older in their like 50s or 60s or 70s or whatever would be interested in microdosing. I was just as surprised as you were when we did our first rollout of the microdosing course in late August. We had about 230 people who enrolled and the average age of the person who enrolled was 55. Oh, wow. Really? Out of 200 people? Yeah, the average age was 55. And that's different, obviously, than the portrait that we're seeing painted from a mainstream cultural perspective, which, you know, a lot of that initial push was, it is these kind of Silicon Valley kind of tech bros, entrepreneurs who are microdosing to quote unquote, be more productive. And that particularly doesn't sit well with me. um, Because I think if I'm learning anything in this process is we don't need more productivity necessarily. Uh, we don't need to produce more at this point um, in, I think, our culture and society. We've produced enough. Uh, I think for me, it's more and more about instead of productivity, it's about creativity and flow states. And I think what work is generally going more and more towards and where microdosing and psychedelics really fit into this is in the industrial age. So from maybe the 16th century up until really now, the main pharmacological substances or drugs that people have consumed have been like that stimulant early in the morning. They get you up, they get you going, they get you working hard, they get you to take initiative. They really help with convergent thinking, which is rote tasks. I need to do boom, 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 and just get it done. And that's what it really helps with. 
And what we're entering now is a stage where, you know, like a lot of that rote task thinking is going to be taken over by AI and automation and, you know, like things that are outside humans. And so all of a sudden what humans are going to be valued for is not being able to do things, but instead being able to create and innovate. And so if we look at the pharmacological drugs that we're using to initiate those states, because I think it's an important point to clarify here, humans will always use drugs. We always yeah. like to alter our state of consciousness. It's just like part of our evolutionary psychology. It's just that in the past we used tobacco, caffeine, and alcohol. And I think in the future, we're going to largely use substances that are similar to psychedelics, which are basically encouraged divergent thinking, which is taking two completely different ideas and synthesizing them into like a new invention. And I think for that reason, like that's also kind of getting into why I focus so much on microdosing. I think microdosing is the future in that people are going to want to alter their state of consciousness and they're going to want to do it with a substance that is known to be non-toxic, that's known to be non-addictive and that engenders neuroplasticity and can contribute to creativity and innovation. A lot of these things that are becoming um, so critical at this point in time where we need really, um, we need to solve some really big problems. One thing that I'm curious about is like, I think back to when coffee was first released, like Voltaire used to drink like 40 cups of coffee a day and people called it like the devils. You know, they thought it was a demon drink. They thought yes! like, I'm you're, so glad. you. Yes. Yeah. Like, like the, like everybody was like, the brain is going to be destroyed by coffee. Everything's going to be ruined. And Voltaire was like, I'm drinking 40 cups a day and churning it out more than you ever have. And it's awesome. But I think about that as like, okay, a big cultural icon was pushing coffee and coffee got through. It's the 1960s. You have like the Beatles are like talking about dropping acid. You have the Doors. You have like Aldous Huxley on like Doors of Perception. Like all sorts of major cultural icons are talking about the value of taking LSD. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't catch on, right? It doesn't, it never like reaches that level of coffee. So I wonder if like if the Beatles couldn't do it, then like why now? Oh wow! You are. This is fantastic. <laughs> you are such a good interviewer. I love. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because when caffeine and coffee were first normalized, like in coffee houses, even in in like England in the UK, like they it was like prohibited. Like yeah, hard. like people thought it was like a denim sin if you were going into a coffee house. Exactly. Like while people so, are also taking laudlum, which is just opium. But like, so I always thought that was like hilarious that those things were occurring at roughly the same time. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> so why now? That, that's a fantastic question. Um, let's start with the '60s. So in the '60s, obviously, the the way that it caught on culturally was primarily through Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert, but also through Ken Kesey uh, and The Grateful Dead. Um, and oftentimes one, the way that that was done was in obviously very, very high doses. And these high doses were very destabilizing because they made people immediately detach from cultural norms and values, but there wasn't a container. There wasn't a new type of infrastructure to step into. So obviously then at that point in time, psychedelics were painted as countercultural, uh, mm -hmm. and they were painted as the other. Uh, and so the primary reason psychedelics got banned in the late 60s, and there's this quote from one of Richard Nixon's top aides where he talks about, hey, we knew, you know, LSD and psychedelics and cannabis, we knew they weren't dangerous, but 
we had a political issue. We had the civil rights movement with black people. We had uh, the countercultural movement that were trying to bring these values of love and compassion and understanding. We couldn't make it illegal to be black and we couldn't make it illegal to be a hippie. So we just made the drugs they used illegal. <laughs> and then it got cracked down because it was perceived as the other. And the way that that's changing today is you know, microdosing is being used by people. Let's go back to the Silicon Valley and the tech example. Yeah. The people who are building things in Silicon Valley, they are creating the new culture and infrastructure in which we will all live. So we think about people like Elon Musk, who apparently has expressed curiosity about microdosing. Uh, we look hmm. at people like Sergey Brin, who is the co-founder of Google, who is at a tech conference that I was recently at in Berlin asking about microdosing. So you have these figures who are really prominent culturally, who are building all the new infrastructure that we're using, and the pharmacological drug that they're using is psychedelics. But I think the second thing that's even more important, particularly uh, in, in this kind of time frame that we're living in right now, is, is the use of psychedelics from a medical perspective. And so that's why organizations like MAPS and Hefter have taken the approach that they have where they said, look, MDMA is super effective for PTSD. So MAPS mm -hmm. is now working with the defense department to start giving MDMA and looking at how they can treat as many vets as possible with this to help them heal their PTSD. And MAPS did this intentionally because of the reasons that you're talking about. They knew that as psychedelics became more mainstream, that the biggest pushback they would get is from the conservative right. And so they knew that by focusing on healing PTSD and war veterans. Like who's going to argue with healing veterans, basically. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and a lot of veterans come from a more right-leaning background. So MAPS knew that by taking that approach, that they would dissolve that cultural resistance to embracing these medicines once again. And so I think that those are like the two big reasons why I think the 60s was like the little kickstart. You know, psychedelics, yeah. for example, are part of what informed the computer revolution. Steve Jobs said that LSD was one of the most profound things that he ever did. Uh, and from that computer revolution came the internet. And from the internet came you know, a resurgence of interest in the psychedelic renaissance um, because of the research and because of information. So um, just when we look at big trends, uh, I think psychedelics will like I said, become more accepted because of their relevance in the tech space and entrepreneurial space and because of how they're being used to treat these, these issues, PTSD, depression, addiction, um, alcoholism, uh, that we have no other answers for at the moment because from a clinical perspective, psychiatric care is still in its infancy yeah. in many ways. You know, I, I've never had clinical issues with addiction, depression, or anything like that. At the same time, I've definitely struggled in certain areas, I think we all have. Yeah. And I think what microdosing will ideally become is it's this thing that we have a relationship with that we can use from time to time when we feel like we have this intuition uh, to want to use it. You know, the way that comes out in my life right now is when I give public talks at conferences or events, I like to microdose beforehand. Um, so that's like, what about for this interview? Did you microdose before this one? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so you're very I, articulate, so it's a nice, it'd be a good plug for microdosing either way. Basically, I've now been microdosing DMT, like I did it right before this conversation. Yeah. Uh, because it like, it, it has this kind of short lasting effect of like euphoria and groundedness and whatnot. So I microdose with DMT. Wait, isn't DMT like 
fucking crazy strong though dmt is like the god molecule is what they call it yeah it's also the active ingredient in ayahuasca which some listeners might be familiar with ayahuasca is the amazonian tea that a lot of people are starting to drink uh to help heal from things uh but you can you can extract dmt from like a number of different things dmt is in everything dmt is in ourselves dmt is like in every plant like bubble so you can extract it and then apparently you can make a vape pen out of it (laughs) no idea Uh, yeah that's totally new to me that's an exciting too we're living in exciting times we're living in really exciting (laughs) times so it's it's not like i'm not blasting off so to say it is very like like still it's a microdose my visual perception is not changing um but i notice like like feelings in my body like a sense of euphoria a sense of time slowing down uh and it's been really interesting so yes i microdose before this um and it and i and i will do it before talks and whatnot and sometimes like if i go to a museum or something yeah okay so let's say like we're like 10 years out you know and the culture has started to shift around microdosing what does your ideal world look like i think first of all my ideal world looks like is is just like I mentioned before, people are informed and they have access to education about these substances. They understand the benefits. They also understand the risks. Um, I think that for me is like number one. But I think beyond that, I think we we have a system and, and Rick Doblin, who is the founder of MAPS, came up with this idea where you basically, if people want to do psychedelics uh, and if we have them beyond medicalization where they're just culturally kind of integrated into what we're doing, um, then they basically go through like a driver's license test where in order to use psychedelics, they have to basically go through an educational process. They might have to use them with like an elder or a mentor first, and then they might get a license where then they can go to, you know, a certain place and pick up maybe like, you know, three to four grams of magic mushrooms or maybe a dose of LSD. So you wouldn't, you wouldn't have it like, like it, even in 10 years, like you're in an ideal world. Like I wouldn't be able to just go to the convenience store, get like a pack of gum and like <laughs> some micro doses and then, you know, like maybe a bag of Funyuns. Not a convenience store. So that's what I was trying <laughs> okay. to clarify. So like you'd have to go to like a therapeutic center where there are, where they're working with psychedelics there. Yeah. Like something that it requires a bit more effort. And, and the way that I hopefully see that out playing out from a cultural perspective in the next 10 years requires thinking beyond the individual ego and the individual self instead of what is it that I want, it's what is it that we are creating. And I think psychedelics will act as a tool and a technology to initiate that kind of post-egoic or trans-egoic state where people go through this intense psychedelic experience. They see beyond their individual self, and that helps them from a leadership perspective to facilitate creativity and innovation in a, in a decentralized, egalitarian way, where instead of it becoming about, this is what we're doing, I, I'm kind of the masculine, aggressive CEO, it's much more collaborative in nature. And so I think for from 10 years down the road, that's also hopefully what I envision. Uh, we, we start to use these things to help us do business in a way that understands our relationship to particularly the earth, because I think the biggest issue we're all facing right now is the, the potential ecological crisis. And I think business is the best way to fix that um, in, a, in a short period of time. So you think you see it as literally changing the way we work and like the values in, of a company. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's why like, 
you know, there, there are some people who say, you know, psychedelics are being co-opted by corporations through microdosing, where all of a sudden, you know, you have these kind of tech bros and people in corporations who are using microdosing to be more productive and, you know, make more money for their capitalist <laughs> lords. That's what these, this is like the language sometimes I read online or whatnot. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think corporations aren't uh, co-opting microdosing. Microdosing and psychedelics are starting to co-opt corporations. And I think it's a, a significant sign when you see people who are being open about the fact that they're taking LSD at their job. <laughs> like that's like things are starting to shift. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so I think that for me is particularly the, the larger vision. Um, you know, my uh, optimistic, somewhat maybe utopian vision is that with automation and AI, people will finally be free to really create and, and act on their own inner expression. And I think humans are always going to have to do something. We're going to need to create. We're going to need to be inspired. We're going to need to contribute back, right? Uh, and we unfortunately call that at this moment work. Um, in the future, I think that even we won't even refer to this as work anymore. It'll be will completely change the definition and and, and the, the vocabulary that we use around contributions and collaboration in a way. I feel like hearing your perspective has been really cool and very interesting. So, where can people find your work? Yeah, so uh, our website is thethirdwave.co. We're on Twitter at Third Wave is here, uh, Facebook, The Third Wave. We have a ton of free resources on our website. And like I mentioned earlier, we also have a microdosing course. I really encourage people just to check out our free resources, um, all, all the stuff that we've written up. And if people have particular questions about it, like to reach out to us and you know, we'll be happy to help uh, any way we can. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. This was uh, an absolute blast for me. Absolutely. Thank you so much. You were a phenomenal uh, <laughs> interviewer. And it was just, I love like the topics that we got a chance to dive into. So thanks for doing this. I'm back. Thanks for listening. I really love hearing from you guys. So be sure to leave a rating and review wherever you get your podcast. And if you know someone with a weird job, we want to be best friends. Send us an email at hello at weirdworkpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.